the organ, pianoforte, drum set, electric guitar. Behind every musical revolution is a revolutionary instrument, a new tool that opens entirely new sonic worlds. The 20th century saw perhaps the most significant changes to music in human history. My name is Patrick Hochberger, and this episode of Extra Tones is all about the synthesizer. From classical performances, to radio, I hold back sometimes I won't, yeah. and Netflix. Synthesized sounds are everywhere. Yet I, as a classical musician, knew embarrassingly little about these instruments. In this episode, we will learn together about the history and invention of the synthesizer, its precursor, the theremin, as well as hear from a Chicago synth musician. Well, hi, I'm Trevor Pinch. I'm a professor at Cornell University of Science and Technology Studies. I'm the author of the book, Analog Days, The History and Impact of the Moog Synthesizer. So I write about the history of electronic music and the development of technology. And I'm also a working musician playing in an electronic duo called the Electric Golem. <laughs> the electronic music synthesizer transform music. You know, it's, it not only emulate the sound of other instruments, but produce its own unique sound as well. And this is a key breakthrough. And I think people haven't realized. They just thought it was a kind of, you know, oh, wow, that's a sort of quirky, interesting thing, makes weird sounds. You know, the Beatles used it on Abbey Road, so what? No, no, this, this instrument is a revolutionary instrument. It's led to a breakthrough in how we think about musical instruments. In the US in the 1960s, there were two primary competing visions for what a synthesizer could and should be. The Buchla box, and what would eventually become far more popular, the Moog. The Moog synthesizer is the first commercial synthesizer that, that's made. So early on, I knew about the Moog, but I didn't know about Bob's West Coast kind of rival, Don Buchla, who at the same time as Robert Moog was developing what we call a modular electronic music synthesizer. Very similar in a way to Bob's in, in the fact it was modular. But Bob, one of the, the key things, the only thing on the synthesizer he has a patent for, he developed something called the low-pass filter, which for many people is the characteristic sound of the Moog, you know, deep, resonant, bass-filtered sound. And um, this is a sound that you hear right through hip-hop music and rap music, right through to today, techno music. This is a dominant, that bass... So he had a patent on this thing called the low-pass filter, and that gave the synthesizer the characteristic sound, and then you could use the keyboard to control it. Now, one of the main differences between Bob Moog on the East Coast and Don Buchler on the West Coast was the use of the keyboard to control it. Bob, after he developed the synthesizer, realized very early on that you could control these voltages with a simple resistance chain, which was basically a keyboard. It was monophonic, one note at a time. Now, Buchla, he once hooked a keyboard up to his instrument, and he hated it. And um, he didn't want to be stymied by what he saw as conventional music. He thought that if you put a keyboard on, it'll become like a, another version of the electric organ or something like that. So he, he had a much more radical vision. He thought, well, what you can do, if you don't have the keyboard there, you can make a whole new genres of music and sweet. And he also had one of the early um, 
key inventions on his synthesizer booklet called the sequencer for making little sequences of sound. He was the inventor of that. Doesn't get enough credit for that because that again is a thing that, you know, the whole of techno music today is dependent upon the sequencer in one form or another. And so Buchler had the sequencer as well. And so it was a different vision. The East Coast with the keyboard, the more wilder designs of Buchler on the, the West Coast. And Bob Moog was a 50s engineer. And so he liked to manufacture. His designs were very reliable. The famously, you know, the, each Moog synthesizer that came off the line, there was the famous drop test where they dropped the synthesizer off the bench and see if it still worked. Because they knew that if these instruments were going to be any success at all to musicians, they're going to be used around the world. They had to be idiot proof. So musicians who didn't know this complicated machine with all these patches, musicians who didn't know what the hell they were doing, could not destroy the machine. And roadies carrying these things, you know, on gigs in Tokyo, whatever, wouldn't have dropped the thing. It would still work. So Bob's instruments had that reputation of being they were expensive, but they were high quality instruments that could stand the life of gigging musicians. Before synthesizers, there were other early electronic instruments. Perhaps most significant was the theremin. So Furman was a, a celebrity in Europe, and the Russians sent him around basically with this new electronic music instrument, the theremin that he developed in the 1920s. And then they sent him to America. When we think of spy today, we think of someone sinister, you know sort of working for the Soviets in a sinister Cold War way. But I think what, what the connotation then was that people from the Soviet Union who were sent abroad just naturally would send information back. It was almost part of the job. If you're going to be an emissary of the Soviet Union and you, you're this incredible inventor. And so I think he was, research shows that he was sending back information about you know, what was happening in America back to Russia. Furman was an amazing guy. He had a studio in New York City. He trained famously Clara Rockmore, who's the greatest Thurman virtuoso, and the Thurman was been used as a as a classical instrument then. used it in Spellbound. It was used in all sorts of movies to signify when aliens appear. But that came later. Then it was a serious instrument. So Thurman had this flourishing studio. Then there was a kind of big scandal because he took a very much younger wife, an African-American woman called Lavinia Williams, who was um, a really important ballerina in New York City. And this was created a bit of a scandal amongst his upper class sponsors and supporters. And then just before the start of the Second World War, he vanished. And it turns out the Soviets had come for him and he either went back of his own accord or he was kidnapped, whichever version of this story you accept. But what we do know is that when he arrived back in Russia, he quickly fell out with the Russian authorities and Stalin sent him to a, a labor camp. And he was rescued from that because they suddenly realized the Russians that they had their best scientists in labor camps. And this is kind of crazy. So he's put in another special camp just for scientists. 
and uh, eventually, you know, with Glasnost and Perestroika and all that, and you know, the end of the Soviet Union as we knew it, eventually won his freedom. Bogmo always told me he thought Thurman was the real electronic music genius. He would always, you know, bow his head to Thurman because and, and well, his first and last love was building Thurmans. He was still building them for the Moog company. They still have, you know, new Thurmans there. And he, he loved that instrument. <laughs> Kyle Kunkler is a classically trained pianist and one third of Spooky Generator, a Chicago-based electronic music trio. We spoke about why synthesizers still resonate with young musicians and what developments in electronic music are on the horizon. My name is Kyle Kunkler. I'm a piano player of, I guess, I think 16 years now. Um, that was my instrument for a very long time. I went to school and, and studied uh, anything I could on the piano. I studied jazz and classical mostly, and uh, composition mostly in the classical vein. And in college, I started getting into synthesizers. I just wanted to bring up the theremin because that's a completely different interface. Yeah, extremely so. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, that's just, it's, um, I think, most useful just in, in opening your mind to the possibilities of, of other alternative interfaces that yeah. could be used for controlling a synthesizer. Absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of work now in composition taking things like, uh, like Raspberry Pi or Arduino yeah. boards and there are these tiny little computers that you can hook up a bunch of sensors to. And by hooking up the sensors well and making maybe, say, a glove that controls something or attaching a bunch of light sensors to something, you could make a different interface. You could make it so that you know, changing the light on something changes the sound that you're making. Uh, people have been doing a lot of work on that stuff. They're often not really changing the sound-producing hardware. They're just changing the way you interface with it. Yeah. Uh, there's an obvious performance element to what you just described. Mm -hmm. If you remove the fact that it's being done with a glove, mm -hmm. are they doing interesting stuff musically that you could still appreciate just as music without seeing how they're doing it? A lot of times right now that probably wouldn't help anything. If you, if you went into the studio and you went and recorded the part using these amazing gloves you had built that could yeah. control the music, that probably won't be apparent by just listening to it. I think it would be more of a performative thing. There is something very magical about seeing someone up on stage moving their hands and dynamically changing the sound as they go. That's, that's incredible. That could be a very moving experience. Yeah. In the studio, you might be able to get a more expressive, just pure sound by just programming it very intricately or making controllers that are a little less finicky, I suppose. Yeah. Um, a lot of times, I think the sounds they're making are, are similar to things that have been made before. What's really yeah. magical about it is seeing them perform it. That yeah. can be just incredible. So recorded music, it gets invented, right? We start recording music, and then yeah. you can start doing things in the studio that were never possible before. Mm -hmm. You can take a passage and, and record it slower and play it back faster so yeah. that it's like superhuman. Yeah. It's a way, in a way, it's giving you superpowers. Right. Things you could never do in live performance. Yeah. This is kind of live performance fighting back. Yeah. Live performance is trying to get its own superpowers it's sure. trying to maybe not do things that haven't been done before in the studio. It might be doing things that have been done before in the studio, but if it's never been done before in live performance, mm -hmm. then that's incredibly valuable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems seems like you can trace some of this, this stuff along the line of how the studio's developed, right? Like people like Brian Eno, they started pushing the idea that a studio is an instrument, yeah. right? And 
And then you start seeing the studio bleeding back over into live performance. You see a bunch of guitarists using effects pedals on stage to be able to yeah. replicate things they could do in a studio. And synthesizers coming back out onto the live stage. And it seems like a lot of the tech that we've developed for live performance has been an attempt to do that, to bring studios back onto the stage and then actually perform live things that seem downright superhuman. Yeah. I was working on, on one that was trying to learn more about alternative controllers, right? So cool. I, was, I was playing with one that uh, using light sensors with composition. So writing a piano composition and then using light sensors to change the way that synthesis was done in the background. Let's, let's talk about that. Yeah. Light sensors, what does that look like? It looks like almost nothing. You can kind of hide them. They're tiny and they're ridiculously cheap. It's kind of amazing. Even. So the sensor, so the light sensor is on the glove. It's literally just on my hand. On your hand. One. Yeah, I would, I would like to do that eventually. For this one, it's kind of just tied onto my hand, and it just sits on the back. And the light is just your standard light that's in the room? Yeah, you could. You can do that. It'll, that'll give you a pretty limited range of reading. So what do you do? So instead, we black out the room. Got it. Put a couple of lights in there that you can change the brightness of. And so then by changing the brightness, it kind of acts like a mixer. Yeah. You can, you can change the amount that it changes some... Some effect or other, you could, you know, in a limited sense, you could add reverb or something like that to a sound, right? Make it sound like it's in a bigger room or a smaller room. But you can do so many more crazy things, because to the computer, all it is is just this range of data from, like, yeah. 0 to 126. And you can do anything you want with that. And it's very, it's very theatrical, I guess, yeah. right? The changing lighting in that way is it's very dramatic. It yeah. looks cool. Big question. Yeah. Why were synthesizers not a fad? Why do they still resonate? with someone born in the 90s. Yeah. Why does your generation still use synthesizers? I guess they're sort of, they're growing their own history, right? Yeah. So um, they're pretty early on with it. It's not, it's not even gotten close to being tapped out as an instrument that's, um, there's just a lot of stuff still left to do with it. The changes that they've made in the responsiveness of some of these instruments, the new types of controllers that they're working on, the new styles of synthesis that current computer processing makes possible yeah. have uh, just given you new possibilities in sound design. The tech is rapidly evolving. I guess that makes it exciting in a different style than the piano, because I kind of know piano will probably be about the same when I die as <laughs> it is now and yeah. when I started playing it, and I'll love it just as much. But the synth is probably going to look very, very different. Synthesizers are going to look pretty crazy by the time I'm much older. And I would like to be able to, to you know, ride at the forefront of uh, those, tech, those technology changes as they go and see what kinds of sounds they make possible. Yeah, it's just an exciting area. I think that's not obvious to someone from the outside yeah. that, um, that you don't see this as something that like peaked in the 70s. No. This is something that you're still at the beginning of the history of the synthesizer. I imagine so, yeah. 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 I, I have sort of... I guess my sense of what a synthesizer is doesn't doesn't just mean those those ones yeah. you see on stage too. Yeah. I'm also thinking of things that you can you know, sample a sound and just mutilate it in really strange ways and then replay it. And um, it's those sorts of things that also really astound me. I mean, we used to used to make kind of laughable brass patches mm -hmm. on something in the '70s, right? And they were they're cool in their own right, and we still make them now. They don't sound like brass instruments. It doesn't sound like trumpets at all, really. Um, but now you kind of can make something that sounds like them, and sounds like them in a weird, otherworldly sort of way. 
people sort of underestimate how much they hear them. People hear versions of synthesizers in recordings all the time. They hear them in movie scores. They hear them in records. And that's it for this episode of Extra Tones. Thank you to Professor Trevor Pinch, author of Analog Days, Kyle Kunkler of Spooky Generator, our producer Sarah Zwinklis, and you for joining us. Check out our Facebook or visit our website at relevanttones.com.